Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We have God's Word written. It is, again, we say often, inerrant, infallible, sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. We're to hunger for this Word, and what a blessing that we have it in our language, that we can read it and understand it and hear it preached and proclaimed. I'm going to be reading Philippians 4, 1-9, because as you know, week after week, These verses go together under the theme of stand firm in the Lord. But we're going to focus our attention on the last part of verse 5. The Lord is near. Hear the word of God. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The theme of these verses is stand firm in the Lord in verse 1. We've seen so far in this passage the connection of these verses. And we see the connection in verse 1. In this way, those words tell us that what he is about to say is the manner in which they are to stand firm. We've seen the comprehensiveness of these verses. They address our relationships. We have to maintain biblical and godly relationships. Live in harmony in the Lord, verses 2 and 3. We have to cultivate a godly and biblical heart of affection toward him. Rejoice in the Lord. We have to have a growing godliness and character. We're to have a gentle spirit we saw last week. Our relationship to God is addressed in these verses. We should have a proper understanding of who he is. We'll see that today. The Lord is near. And then apply that to life. Live in light of that. Because we know who the Lord is, we know he is near. We therefore are not anxious, but we go to him in trusting prayer and have the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It's comprehensive. Not only relationships, our character, our affections, our relationship to the Lord, but our thinking in verse 8. We must develop Christ-like godly thinking. And it's all capped off in verse 9 with obedience. So we've seen the, the connection and the comprehensive nature of all these verses. 
But this morning, we will consider the second half of verse 5, which says, the Lord is near. Now, this passage is filled with imperatives, commands. Stand firm in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. Do not be anxious, but let your requests be made known to God. Dwell on these things. Practice these things. These are imperatives and commands. But here at the end of verse 5, we have an indicative, a statement. And this statement was not about them, the church. It wasn't about their behavior. It wasn't about their relationships in the church or in the world. And yet this statement affects all those things. It is a statement about God. The Lord is near. It's a statement of truth about God. A statement of fact that affects our lives. It's brief. It's pithy. Just four words in our English translation. Only three words in the Greek in which it was originally written. And yet it's profound and practical. The Lord is near. This is a rich truth. It's a sobering truth. And at the same time, a comforting truth. It's practical. It's applicable. And this is a truth that gives stability to our souls in every circumstance. When we live in light of this truth. It aids us in standing firm in the Lord. The truth is simply this. The Lord is near. If we are to stand firm in the Lord, then we must know him. We must know him savingly. That is, we placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. But we must know him and be on a pursuit to know him and all the practical effects on our lives, everyday effects that this has on every area of our lives. So before we look at that phrase, the Lord is near in more detail, let me give you some situations, some real life situations in which the knowledge of God and indeed the nearness of God is very important. The doctor walks into the room. The look on his face is serious as he looks over the chart. And Mary's heart is racing as she anticipates his words. Mrs. Jones, the doctor says, looking up at her, the results of your biopsy show that the mass is indeed malignant. We'll need to do surgery as soon as possible. I think we can remove the tumor, but there's some indication that the cancer may have spread. Now, what does Mary need at that moment? She needs a knowledge of God. She needs to know her sovereign God who cares for his children. That nothing touches his children apart from his sovereign good and gracious will. Mary needs to know that the Lord is near. Stan is abruptly awakened from his sleep by a loud knock on the door. And struggling to wake up, 
he sees a police officer at the door. Opening the door, the officer asks, are you Mr. Edwards? Yes, I am. I'm Officer Smith. Is your son named Thomas? Yes, I, is everything okay? Mr. Edwards, you and your wife need to come to the hospital. Your son's been in a car accident. Is he okay? You just need to come to the hospital. What does Stan need in such a time? Well, among other things, Stan needs to know the God of all comfort, who comforts us in whatever affliction we are in. He needs to know the Lord is near. Jim and Janet sit together in the same room, but their hearts are far apart. He browses on his phone while she just sits there thinking about their lives, and her thoughts are jumbled because of the constant noise of the television that neither of them is watching. Her thoughts go back to their wedding day. It was such a joyful day. They started off well, but through the years, their focus has gotten off of Christ. And now, years later, the kids are gone, and their lives are miserable. There's no joy in their relationship with God or with each other. In fact, there's no real relationship between them. So Janet silently asks God, is there any hope? She looks over at Jim and says, Jim, can we talk? Wait a minute, I'm texting someone about work. And after a few minutes, he says, okay, what is it? George, do you really love me? Now, what does Jim and Janet need to know about God? Well, they need to know that he created marriage for his own glory. And their marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. They need to know that God is full of compassion and forgives those who repent and turn to him. And the God who created marriage is able to restore their marriage to conform to his word for his glory. God is not far off, but the Lord is near to Jim and Janet. Barbara is struggling with her thoughts as she drives home from church. She longs for companionship so much that she hates to go home. It's so lonely and depressing. Will I ever get married, she thinks to herself. God, why am I not married? That's my desire. I want to do your will, but if that means being single the rest of my life, I'm not sure I can do that. Barbara needs to know that God is all-sufficient. And among other things about God, she needs to know, too, that the Lord is near. Now, I could go on and on with situation after situation. Situations of financial difficulty. A wayward child. These are all real-life situations. And what do people need when they find themselves in these situations in life? Sometimes, in some of the situations I gave at least one, it's because of personal sin. But sometimes it's not, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Sorrow comes from so many places in a fallen world. What is the one thing that all these people need in the examples I gave to you? They need to know their God, and they need to live in light of him. We need to know God. 
But we've been told that we need to focus on ourselves. We need to learn more about ourselves. We need to dig deep down within. We're told that the answers to life's problems are found within you. And real change only comes through digging deep into your past and finding out why you behave the way you do. Look into your past and see why you become the person that you are. When your marriage is having difficulty, we're told to do a personality test and find out who you are and why you relate the way you do. And then, and only then, you'll be able to understand problems in your marriage and change. We're constantly being told in one form or another that the answer lies primarily in knowing yourself, but not knowing God. And so the focus has become, it is, it's always been in the world, obviously, but it's infiltrated the church. The focus has become ourselves, not God. The self-esteem movement took hold a long time ago. It's orthodox, quote-unquote, doctrine to the world, and even in many churches today. It teaches that in order to function properly in society and in relationships, you need to have a high self-esteem. You have to feel good about yourself. And this view says that all the ills of society can in some way be tied to and solved by self-esteem. If we have a healthy, high esteem of ourselves, and this doctrine has permeated the public education system for many years and continues to be propagated through that, but now there are churches and have been for many years that have propagated this self-esteem teaching. I recall an article many years ago in the Los Angeles Times entitled Losing Faith in the Self-Esteem Movement. Here's what it said. At Lauren Miller Elementary School in Los Angeles, a school struggling to raise test scores that are barely in double digits, children spent the last part of each day working on their self-esteem. In daily I love me lessons, they completed the phrase I am with such words as beautiful, lovable, respectable, kind, or gifted. Then they memorized the sentences to make them sink in. And this article says, you know what the result was? Did it work? And the article, believe it or not, said, no, it did not work. Grades were not raised. The late Robin M. Dawes, who was a psychology professor at Carnegie Mellon University, wrote this at the time. The false belief in self-esteem as a force for social good can be not just potentially but actually harmful. And the article went on to say that good self-esteem, quote, doesn't necessarily pay off in greater academic achievement, less drug abuse, less crime, or much of anything else. Or if it does pay off, 10,000 or more research studies have yet to find proof. And yet the self-esteem teaching is settled doctrine, never questioned. And it finds its way, it seems, into almost every solution in one form or another to the ills of society. But as I said, much of the visible church, the professing church, has bought into this same worldly doctrine. 
I once browsed through a homeschool curriculum that touted itself to be Christ-centered. However, as I browsed through it, I found that a major part of the curriculum focused on getting your child to feel good about himself. See, the problem isn't that we focus on ourselves too little and think too lowly of ourselves. The real problem is we focus on ourselves too much and think too highly of ourselves. And the biblical mandate is this. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes on others, serving others, and ultimately get your eyes off of yourself and fix them on Christ. Be preoccupied with Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off of yourself and place them on God. I could give you example after example, and I I have pages here, but I'm going to make an editorial decision (laughs) to move on and not give you any others. Let me just say this. Even so-called Christian counselors, psychologists through the years have said we need to focus more on ourselves and look deep within, but I'm saying we don't need more navel-gazing. We need more God-gazing. We need to know God. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why is it that churches are spiritually weak and unstable? There are a lot of answers to that. But at least one is we don't know God as we should and live in light of who he is. Why are some Christians spiritually weak and unstable? Again, they don't know God and live in light of who he is. And so remember in Philippians 4 verse 1, Paul is exhorting them and stirring them up to spiritual stability. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then he tells them how to do it. Live in harmony in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Grow in graciousness. Be like Christ who was meek and gentle. But now he says, Here's another thing, and it's, it's as though if you're not careful, you can just read right over it and just say, no, let me get to some meat. This is the meat. The Lord is near. And so here he's telling them something about who God is. Now, why does he say that, and how is it related to standing firm? And the answer is simple, because spiritual growth, spiritual stability, maturity, faithfulness, it comes from knowing who God is. Do you want to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved? Then know your God. Children, know God. Learn about him. Learn who he is. What is he like? What does the Bible say about him? We've been singing it today. He's holy, holy, holy. How does a holy God relate to sinners such as we? Jesus Christ, the Savior, know him. Know what the Bible says about him. The gospel is about God. Teenagers, know God. Don't be consumed with yourself. Don't let your pursuit be finding yourself. Be consumed with knowing God and pursuing him. Have a passion for purity and holiness. Parents, do you want to really help your children? 
Don't focus on self-esteem. Don't have a child-centered home. Have a God-centered home. You, parent, know God and teach your children who he is. Wife, do you want to be a godly, submissive, respectful wife that honors the Lord? Know God. Husband, do you want to be a godly leader and do you want to love your wife as Christ loves the church? Then you need to know God. Singles, do you want to glorify and please Christ in your current state? Know God. Believers, this is what we must do. A pursuit to know him. Remember chapter 3 verse 10, that I may know him. Because our ability to stand firm is inseparably linked with our knowledge of God and the application of that knowledge to our lives. Now, some would say that is just simply too simplistic. I skipped over a quote earlier when I made an editorial decision, but I'm going to read you this part of what I skipped over. In a particular book, Larry Crabb, Inside Out, for those of you who are another generation, you remember when that came on the scene, he said this, reminders of God's love and exhortations to meditate on Jesus' care sometimes provide about as much help as handing out recipes to people waiting in a food line. In other words, he's saying, reminding people of who God is and his love and meditating on Jesus' care for his people is of no value. It doesn't help you change. He says change from the inside out, which was the name of his book, requires more than dealing with problems in our world by praying and trying to respond biblically. Take out the verses we'll be looking at next. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 doesn't work. He says that it requires more than handling pain in our heart by reflecting on comforting truth. Take out all of scripture then. See, that's what people have bought into today. And people say it's just too simplistic. What you're preaching in Philippians 4 is too general, it's too simplistic. Listen, I can say to you, and experience is not our authority, but I can say to you on the authority of God's word applying it, it is not too simplistic. It's why I'm standing here today. This isn't theory. The things I have preached to you and talked about, the sorrows of this world and the death of those you love, wayward children or other trials or difficulties, it's not theory. I can say to you, I am standing firm in the Lord by his grace because of these truths. Not because I've looked within, but because I've looked to God. And so we need to know him And that's how we stand firm. And that's why in the middle of all these imperatives, these commands and prohibitions, Paul reminds them the Lord is near. The Lord is near. A simple yet profound statement about God that needs to be understood and applied. So what does it mean? Let's start there. The Lord is near. Well, this can refer to the word near, to time, something being near in time, or near in regard to space, close by, near in that sense. And the word can mean either. Some, it will really most interpret the Lord is near as a reference to the coming of Christ and the Lord's coming is near. 
And indeed, James 5.8 says, the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is near. And so there are scripture passages that speak of the nearness of the coming of the Lord and the consummation of all things. It is approaching. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And if that is what Paul is saying here, he's reminding them of what he spoke of in chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 about a day of resurrection. And we're looking for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that strengthens us. It should give us hope and help us to stand firm. But I do not believe that this particular reference here speaks of the second coming of the Lord. I believe it refers to his nearness, not strictly to space, but what that means for our relationship that he is intimately acquainted with, has knowledge of, because he is indeed omnipresent, omniscient, and involved and at work in our lives, that he is near. The Lord is not far off from us. He's not distant. He's near to his people. He's near to his church. So here it's just the Lord is near, not the coming of the Lord is near. He doesn't say the end of all things is near. Here he's saying the Lord himself is near. And I believe it's something that he is speaking of here that's true about the nature and essence of God that when understood is a great comfort to us that causes us to stand firm. The Lord is near. Now to understand that, you need to understand something about God's nature and character, namely, children, the omnipresence of God, the omnipresence of God, that he is present everywhere. The omnipresence of God refers to God's infinity in relationship to space. He transcends spatial limitations. He is present in every part of his creation with his whole being. It may be more appropriate to say that everything is in God's presence. For in him we live and move and have our being, Paul said in Acts 17, verse 28. So God is an infinite spirit who does not have spatial limitations. And therefore, he cannot be contained by any space. David said when he built the temple in 1 Kings 8.27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house, the temple that I have built. Heaven is his throne. He sits in the heavens, figuratively speaking. He transcends spatial limitations. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He said in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, I am a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, Where can I go from your spirit, David says? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. You see the comfort in that? And your right hand will lay hold of me. Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. There is nowhere in the entire universe where God is not. Now, God, if I can put it in this way, God is present everywhere, yet he acts differently in different places and in relationship to different parts of his creation, let's say. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's very helpful to understand that he's present everywhere, to sustain creation. He is present in some cases to judge, but he is present in some places to bless. Now he's present to sustain all of his creation. He is before all things and in him he hold and in him all things hold together Colossians 1:17. Hebrews 1 verse 3 speaks of Jesus being the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So he is present to sustain his creation. Again, the reason why right now there's order to creation is because of God's presence to sustain it, uphold it. But he is present in certain situations, to judge. In Amos chapter 9, it says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the, the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a, fug or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol... From there shall my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and I will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and slay them. I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And there he's talking about God's judgment upon the wicked. And there's nowhere they can go to escape his judgment. Yes, God is present in hell. When the Bible says that hell and eternal condemnation is away from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't mean in his essence, for he is there, but he is there to judge. It just means there's no hope. There's no presence to bless. But he is there to judge by his almighty power. But he's also present to bless his people. This is what's so glorious about heaven. In Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men, 
And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. What's being described there is the the presence of God among the people, his people in heaven, to bless them. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 73, verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. The believer there, although he was struggling and wrestling with various things and in Psalm 73, he understood God's presence, the nearness of God is my good. And I believe that's what Paul is now reminding these Christians of in the church at Philippi. The Lord is near. Now, what does that mean? Tying all this together is to this phrase in the middle of standing firm and what we talked about already and really what we will talk about in the rest of these verses in Philippians 4, 1 to 9. What does it mean? Well, let me have you consider how this truth, the Lord is near, is related to certain things. First of all, how it's related to sin and accountability. How is the Lord is near related to sin and accountability? Well, in order to escape accountability for our lives and our sin, we try to get away from those to whom we are accountable, right? I mean, the children do this from a young age. They, they've done something wrong, so they go and they hide themselves. It started in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves. Pastor Devon mentioned that when he was teaching in Proverbs today. Children do that. They don't want their parents around. They don't want accountability. So they go hide to do something. They get some candy they know they're not supposed to eat. So they want to get away from the presence of those that would hold them accountable or those to whom they're maybe disobeying in that instant. Or as they grow up, children leave their parents to escape answering to them. But the fact of the matter is we're accountable. We're accountable to in human relationships, whether we're in their presence or not. We're accountable to one another. And when we leave this place, we're still accountable as the body of Christ to one another. We're accountable to pastors who shepherd our souls. Children are accountable to parents. We're accountable as husband and wife. I'm accountable to my wife and she to me. But we're all accountable to God. Why? For the Lord is near. And his ways, the ways of man, are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths, Proverbs 5.21. Now, this is terrifying if you're not a believer. If your sins have not been forgiven, then this is a warning to you. You cannot escape the presence of God. You may do your sin in secret. You may... Run from those that you don't want to see your sin and you may try to hide your sin and you may try to do it at night. That's why nighttime is the prime time for doing certain things because there's this illusion of a cover, so to speak, of darkness. But God sees it all. The Lord is near, but that's not comforting if you're an unbeliever. 
Job 34 verses 21 and 22 rightly says, For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. It is all open and laid bare before God. You do not sin in private. And so this is, in a sense, a warning to us as believers, too. We're accountable to God. The Lord is near. Now, think about this in the context of Philippians chapter 4. Euodia, Syntyche, live in harmony in the Lord. The Lord is near. The Lord is watching He's intimately acquainted with that relationship and all the relationships in the body of Christ. You might be able to cover up conflict in those relationships from certain people from seeing it, but God is near. The Lord is near. He sees it. That should call us to account in relationships. I can't just cover this up, sweep it under the rug. He governs our relationships. God doesn't give commands and then walk away. No, the Lord is near. So how would you relate in the home or in the church, in those relationships, if Jesus were physically sitting with you as you, let's say, met with that person? If Euodia and Syntyche Syntyche had Jesus sitting with them as they met together to talk about their conflict, How might they conduct themselves? I know that's a what if, but Paul's saying the Lord is near, Euodia and Syntyche. He's present with his church. So how might we handle conflict if we know that the Lord is near? But secondly, consider how this truth is related to persecution and suffering for Christ's sake. Again, we've been going through Philippians. We know they have been persecuted for Christ's sake. There are opponents to the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. They have to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Paul himself is in prison with the gospel, for the gospel. We know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. How does this truth aid the people of God? The Lord is near in the midst of that. You see, the Apostle Paul was rejoicing in the Lord, even though he was in prison for preaching the gospel. He knew the Lord was near and intimately involved, even in that trial and persecution for Christ's sake. And he was seeing practically the outworking of the nearness of the Lord. The gospel was still spreading. He was in chains, but the gospel was not chained. And I think Paul is saying to them something here that was precious to him. It's not unlike when I say to you, I say something to you because it's precious to me. It's not theory. And Paul is saying the Lord is near. And Paul's in a, in a prison facing trial. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. And he's wrestling with that in chapter 1, if you remember. But he laid hold of the truth about God. The Lord is near. God may protect me and keep me from physical harm and I may live. If so, to live is Christ. But I may die for the sake of the gospel. But I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to fear the consequences for the Lord is near. 
This is a truth that affects us. Listen, as we're persecuted for Christ's sake, now and in the future, we have the confidence that the Lord is near to his people. That's why when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, he said, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whatever you endure as you preach the gospel, sometimes an aroma of life, sometimes an aroma to some of death to death. They won't believe it. They'll hate you for it. They'll malign you for it. But the Lord has promised, I am with you always. The Lord is near. Consider how the truth that the Lord is near is related to trials and sorrow. And here we see the connection to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But how, you say? How can I do so in such sorrow and trials? Here's how. The Lord is near. First, that simply means this. He's not absent in your trial. How many times have we said, where is God in this trial and in this sorrow? Here's where he is. He's near. And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 is saying the Lord is near and at work in your trial, even in your sorrow, to conform you to the image of Christ. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. He's not absent. The Lord is near in your trial. You say, my heart is broken. And the sorrow is strong. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So how can I rejoice in the Lord? The Lord is near to sustain me, to work. He will never desert me, nor will he ever forsake me. Hebrews 13, verse 5, his grip is firm. He will not let me go. He will always be with me. That's why we sing Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. What, why is all of that true? Because as we sing, I am with you. The Lord is near. Consider how this truth the Lord is near is related to worry and fear. We're going to be looking at verse 6. It leads right into verse 6. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety, worry can make us stumble and fall, but the Lord is near. And what are we to do? Call upon his name in trusting prayer. And he will give us this God who is near to us. His peace which surpasses all understanding. Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. You see, the Lord is near. When you're anxious, cry out to the Lord. We'll see this again in more detail in verses six and seven, for he is near and his ears are open to your cry. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, Psalm 145, verse 18. 
And then lastly, consider the truth that the Lord is near and how that relates to our sanctification and practical holiness. Again, Paul's not just throwing that out there as something to be said as if it's just a Christian cliche. No, he said in Philippians 1 verse 6, For I am confident, church of Philippi, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is at work in you. And he said in chapter 2 verse 13, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God is not like the the God of the deist who's disengaged. Yes, he is omnipresent and he's an infinite spirit and he transcends in this sense all of his creation. But he's imminent. He's near. That means he's at work. God is at work in this church to sanctify it. He's chastening, he's encouraging, he's strengthening, he's reproving, he's training in righteousness. God is at work. The Lord is near. This is why we read of, in Revelation 1 verse 20, these words. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you remember, we're about to read this in our consecutive reading of scripture in a few weeks through the book of Revelation. Seven lampstands were the seven churches that he addresses in chapters two and three. And then it says in Revelation 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now what he says is is Pastor Ernest taught on not too long ago. What he said to the church at Ephesus, but... Just before it tells us what he says, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let me just, here's what it means. The one who is near to the church. He is walking. I'm not trying to get mystical on you here. I just want you to understand the reality of this. Jesus Christ is near now. In the preaching of his word. In the gathering of his people, the church as it is at Grace Fellowship Church, he's walking among that lampstand. He's present to bless, to sanctify. He's present to comfort, to strengthen. He's present to sanctify, that we might be in unity together and serve him. He's here, he's present. And that's why I said it's a sobering truth. And it's a comforting truth. So you can see these aren't just four words to read over as if they're disjointed and unrelated to the rest of what's being said. No, we need to know our God. Because in the midst of all these imperatives and commands, 
we need to know the nearness of God. The Lord is near. What a blessing it is to know. For that truth of God's nearness to his people is really the root of how we live in unity together, how we rejoice in the Lord, not only as individual Christians, but together. Not only how we pray together, but how we deal with anxiety, not only individually, but together. And so, brethren, the Lord is near. Let that strengthen you, encourage you, and cause you to stand that our God, our Savior, is near to his people. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we would gaze upon you. If you, you have revealed yourself in the word very specifically, not generally as in creation, but even specifically as to who you are and how you relate not only to your creation and unbelievers, but to your church. I pray that this truth that you are near, Lord, would, would reach out and, and affect every part of our lives. It would affect our sanctification and how we live our lives, how we live in relationship to one another, children to parents, parents to children, husbands and wives, believers to believers, and even how we live in the world in relationship to unbelievers. You are near, you're watching, you're involved, we're accountable to you. But oh, Father, I pray these things would bring comfort to our hearts that in every situation, every trial, every circumstance, the Lord is near, the Lord is at work, our Savior is completing the work he began. And Father, I pray that this would be a comfort to us in anxiety and worry. For you are near to those who call upon you. And you give your peace, which surpasses all understanding, to those who rest in you. We thank you that your nearness, for those who are your people, is our good. Oh, what grace and what mercy you have shown to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.